time on his hands and too much recording equipment in his basement. Armed with an obsession to bring entertaining and informative content to the dental world in a way that's never been done before, I give you the Alan Mead Experience. Well, hello and welcome to the Alan Mead Experience. I'm your host, Alan Mead, dentist, podcaster, and semi-professional tennis ball thrower, for a yellow lab named Gracie. Today, my co-host comes to us from the world of dental podcasting, the world of oral surgery. It's my friend, Dr. Russell Kirk. Russell, how you doing? Hey, I'm great, Alan. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm, I'm very glad to have you. Now, Russell, the first question I have for you is, what is it like to be a person that has two first names? How many times do people call you Kirk, Russell, and Russell? Because I think I've done it to you before myself. So tell me the struggle you've had in your life about that. That's interesting that you bring that up because <laughs> I think one of the segments that we were talking about doing here plays on that exact thing. <laughs> oh, I okay. So I, I get where we're I get where we're going with that. We'll do that. Yeah. So I get it. It's it's embarrassing to me because on occasion when I'm not thinking straight, I will I'll I'll think Kirk instead of Russell, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So yeah, I I answer to both. I'm good. Yeah, yeah I, you know, and and I know where you're going with this in dental school. I answer to whatever. Like basically, it didn't really matter. I just if I thought if I thought it would make it so they wouldn't you know pull me out of line, I would answer to whatever. Exactly. Absolutely. So, uh, Russell, you are coming from Lebanon, Tennessee, right now. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I have been. I have visited. I have been there. Russell had uh, me out in October. To I presented to a group of people that he. Uh, uh, it was. It was your a lot of your uh, referring docs, right? Right. We had yeah, one hundred fifty folks or so. It was the docs and their staff came out. It was a sweet place too, man. It was like oh, this it was beautiful. A- it was unbelievable. It was a blast too. Everybody, they they still are like, hey, when's he coming back? I'm like, well, we'll have to talk to him. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should. Maybe I'll come back. We'll do a live podcast for them. There. Oh, even better. I don't there know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how educational it will be, but it would be fun anyhow. So there you go. So, um, Russell is an oral surgeon in Lebanon, Tennessee, and he has uh, he has a podcast that I listen to. It's called The Business of Dentistry, and uh, something I've always wanted to ask. First off. Clinically, I mean, your your background is, I mean, obviously you, you are a highly educated man uh, because <laughs> you went to school for a really long time. That's what happens when you're an oral surgeon. And uh, so you've got all these clinical chops, and yet you decided to podcast about the business side. So I want to hear a little bit about that. I did not realize how poor a businessman I was when I started my practice. Yeah, funny, yeah. And as the years have gone on, I'm thinking, I wonder how many other people are struggling with this. My beginning of the podcast was I was sitting here and it was almost like self-therapy, just talking about Mm -hmm. it in the room by myself. And then all of a sudden people started listening to it and it took off. And I'm like, wow, this is this is interesting. And I also I'm not much on the video side of things. I have done some video, but I think the clinical sometimes you need that that visual. Yeah, it's a little harder. It's a little harder harder to do clinical as a podcaster purely with audio. I, I think it takes a certain kind and actually like the dental guys who do a really heavily clinical podcast, they do all theirs on YouTube too. So the reality <laughs> is, is even though I listen to it on uh, like when I'm driving back and forth to work, 
Sometimes you'll have to go back and look at their YouTube video to know what they're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, yes, the clinical side kind of uses video. Yeah, they are. They're fantastic. I, I have to say, though, like one of the highlights of the voice of dentistry was watching the four Southern guys. Sit, <laughs> you you and Corey Glenn and, and the dental guys sitting in, in – um, I'm – it was funny because you were talking about Southern dentistry, you know, where like, like it was, it was sort of a regional, you know, I felt a little left out yet. It was fun to watch the, watch the accents go. So that was good. <laughs> that was, that was enjoyable. I was like, I don't know how this is going to play, but we're going to do it. Anyway. It was good. It was really it was good. I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Now in saying that Russell was one of the, uh, one of the presenters at the voice of dentistry. And he also was right in there podcasting with, with all of all the guests and all that stuff. So it was cool. I really appreciate you being a part of that, Russell. Oh, I, I appreciate the invite, and and like I say, hope we get to do that again. Here yeah, soon. yeah. News should be coming sooner. We're we're working on the planning of it. It's just a matter of making it happen. So here is I got. I mean, there's about twenty different ways I could go with you because I know enough about you. But um, we laughed a little bit about doing a segment, and I think that's where we're starting. So I'm going to just start with um, I'm going to start with education. I want to hear a little bit about your dental school background. So I'm going to start the segment right now. It's time for Dental School Horror Story. <laughs> so I think that you're actually the first person, first co-host on the Alan Mead Experience who got, who's actually going for the Dental School Horror Story. So tell us a little bit, where'd you go to dental school? I went to UT Memphis. Okay. And then where was your residency? Uh, back at UT Memphis. Okay. So, so I, I did two tours in Memphis. I like to tell folks <laughs> two, two tours barely survived with all your limbs intact. <laughs> exactly. So, so what kind of, I mean, um, I've talked about dental school being a nightmare for me in the past, but do you have any great stories to tell? I think we probably have some listeners who are either in dental school or, or recent grads. I'd love to hear about, uh, what you might, what you might have. Do you have any great stories for us? Maybe stories about your name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, I was, I was in my third year of clinicals. I got paged overhead in the clinic, which is not a good thing. <laughs> you never wanted to hear your you name. You never exactly wanted to right. hear your name paged over the main intercom That's in, this, funny. in school. Yeah. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is probably, what have I done? And I, you start running through your mind. What have I, what have I screwed up? Who have I, who have I pissed off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go to the chairman of the endo department. And so I'm standing tall at his desk and he makes me stand outside his office door. Mm-hmm. He wasn't doing any damn thing, but he made me stand outside and wait for him. Mm-hmm. And so he finally acknowledges me and asked me to come in. And I'm like, yes, sir. What Dr. Mel, what, what can I do for you? I was paged to your office and he didn't even look up and he said, well, I'm not recommended that you move to your fourth year. And I'm like, whoa, uh, I, I don't understand why, why? He goes, well, you don't have the clinical requirements to move to your fourth year. And I'm really at this point, I'm sweating and I'm puzzled. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I, I don't know where that came from because I'm pretty sure I've met all my endo requirements. Well, that's not what I have on my sheets. Is there any way I can take a look? Nope. Nope. I said, well, is there any way I can, you know, is there any recourse I have? What, what can I do? Because I'm pretty sure he goes, only thing you can do. And I, I heard you guys talking uh, about green sheets. Well, we had pink sheets. <laughs> okay. And there's this big, long file mm-hmm. 
cabinet that we had to go down into the administrative part of the school and they had them all listed and you had to go in and pull these carbon copies. So I had to go down there. I sat on the floor in this admin office probably for a half a day pulling uh, all this out, looking through them, going, where are my endo credits? Yeah. I pulled them all out. I get them together. I make copies. And then I talk to him again. I say, hey, look, here it is. Here's all the stuff. And he goes, that can't be correct. And I go, well, Dr. Mel, I got all these right here. What, what, what the hell? And he's like, Oh, that but doesn't match my numbers. I'm like, but I have the copies of the pink sheets. And he was he was not gonna he was not budging. And by this point, I'm like, I'm I'm kind of getting I'm getting a little upset. Sure. And I'm like, what could have happened? You is there any chance that you could have given my credit to someone else? Oh no, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. And I get to thinking, and I'm like, wait a minute. There's a guy. It's a fourth year dental student. His name is Tommy Russell. Oh, no. I go, would you look and see if he's got like extra credits that might be a little. (laughs) Guys just doing endo for sheer fun, you know, and voila, there they were. And I said, so we're good. He goes, yeah, we're good. And that was it. Wow. What a jackass. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy was relentless on me for the rest of my dental school oh, I'm sure. he would hover over me and, and and it was it was just unpleasant and it I wasn't even it. your error for crying out loud it's one well, thing you know uh. and, and and that guy i and i and i asked you this before we got on here i'm like that guy i think he grew up i think somebody took his lunch money when he was on his way to school every day because he, right? he had a problem he had something and this there, is were, my- there was a lot of that power tripping in Minnesota, too. And I was, oh, you know, it- I had no coping skills for it whatsoever. And I have to say, OK, so there's a lot of things people say bad about millennials. But there's one thing about feeling entitled as a millennial. Like they talk about millennials feel entitled. They feel like little snowflakes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I personally am pretty much a huge fan of millennials. But uh, I will say this. They talk about that entitlement thing. So this could never happen now. To, to the generation that's in dental school because, A, they they feel pretty entitled to the respect of their – like, if you talk to people in dental school now, they don't – the hazing just doesn't happen in the same way that it used to. And I think it's because that generation would not I, – I honestly think it's they have a certain lack of of respect for authority that we didn't have. <laughs> I, I, and I kind of love them for it, actually. I'm not saying that kinda, in a I, negative way. I think I – think, you know, they're paying – I was just talking to my – I was talking to Bart again on the phone. I'm like, they're paying so much money. For their education. Why in the world? Like, I remember that I, I had to stay late in dental school. I'd stay long because I didn't have the credits. And, and it was my fault. You know, to, according to anyone in the clinic, it was my fault that I didn't have the, the credits. And when you step back and go, wait a second, who's paying a lot of money to be educated here? Why, why do I have to get the credits? Why can't you as the school provide me with the patients? You know, at, at what point does, where does this fall on? You know, whose fault is this? I just... Sometimes I sort of can't believe that that I that I took that lying down, but I did. I wouldn't say anything to make anyone cross their eyes at all. Oh, my whole goal, my whole goal when I well, I've, I've mentioned this before. I'm pretty sure they made a mistake, and I'm afraid that somebody's going to hear this and they're going to come back and go, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> exactly. you weren't even supposed to be down here in dental yeah. school." Yeah, and they're going to come and pull my license or whatever. Yeah, but I my goal was to cross the stage at graduation and then go. All the professors go. Who, who the hell is that? Who guy? is that guy? Never, exactly. Who is that guy? I've never seen him. Exactly. That was my goal. Keep your head down. You know, check the boxes. Keep your head down. And so, in that way, the people who said that they actually thought dental school was one of the best times of their life, they enjoyed it, and more power to them. 
those people wouldn't understand the whole, I'm just keeping my head down thing and hopefully no one will notice me. And, and I do. I, I'm like you. I, I do like a little bit of the rebellious spirit of the millennials. I and do. The they're like, hey, you know what? You're not going to talk to me like that. You're yeah, you kind of, I mean, <laughs> in what, maybe it's the way that they're raised. Maybe it's just the time. Maybe it's the technology. But they, you know, it isn't that they demand respect. It's it's more that that um, authority figures don't have as much power, maybe. I don't know what it is. I need to get some millennials on here to tell me what it's about. But And they may think I'm full of crap, too, which may be right. But but I just remember being much more afraid of, of authority figures and dealing. Oh, my, man, it was it was terrible. I um to this day you know although i've been back to the university of minnesota and it, and it um there's some nostalgia but i don't have like waves of dread or anything like that it's just kind of another place at this point so i maybe maybe the healing has begun i don't know <laughs> well and with me people have asked me before oral surgery residency you did it in the same place what was that like i'm like i will do all four years of my oral surgery residency over before I would do one year of dental school. Oh, interesting. Well, tell me about that. What's so residency? First off, you were already a doctor, so they, there was a certain amount of there was a certain amount of respect you had to have, right? Right. They 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 kind of let up with you uh, on that res- uh, in that regard, so you didn't have to overcome that obstacle. Mm-hmm. And it was just a more relaxed and and at UT. And this is my impression. There may be others out there listening that disagree with this, but the oral surgery department. They would let you run with things. They would give you enough rope to kind of hang yourself out there. They would bail you out, but they never were that malignant with things. They just never just come at you just for the sake of coming after you. And that gave me a good impression of oral surgery as a whole. And I didn't even in, in dental school, I didn't even think that I would end up being in an oral surgery arena. Sure, sure. But when we came back, we we kind of that was kind of the flavor of the department. Mm-hmm. And like I say, there, there's going to be instances probably that's not true for everyone because there's always, a, you know, there's always someone. Uh, but overall, it was a it was a great department to be in. And I, I sort of look at that and go, I have a real distaste, no pun intended, for endo <laughs> because bet. of because of the like experience I, I had. For you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. And, and the oral surgery was a totally positive experience for me. And and it may have guided me down the path to where I'm at today, which is great. But I I just don't understand what what the purpose of belittling people and beating them up is. What what purpose it serves at the end of the day? Yeah, I think that it almost has to be that that's how they were treated, and so they figure that they're they're going to pass that that little thing on. I know that my dad graduated in 1968, and he talked about the you know, the hazing. And I experienced some of it at Minnesota. Some of the instructors were all right at Minnesota too. I can't, but there was a fair amount of hazing. And, and what's funny now is these are people who, you know, they're colleagues now. And, you know, like one day difference from hazing you to being a colleague is, you know, basically the day after you graduate, that's obnoxious. I'm sorry, but you know, human, thank you. Agreed. <laughs> human beings. Totally are, agreed. Yeah, I treat them like a human being when they're students and all this, you know, that's fine. And, and I think that I have to say, it sounds like even at Minnesota, I've, I, I've taught at university or I've lectured at the university of Detroit, man, I, those, those students, God, they're, they're in the freaking hood. They're very happy students. They like being there. They've in the, and their instructors seem to be laid back and I could be wrong. If there's university of Detroit students that, that think I'm full of it, I would love it. If you'd email me at Allen at the Allen mead experience.com. Tell me I'm wrong. I'd love to hear about it. We'll have you on the show for crying out loud. <laughs> we'll pull back. We'll pull back the curtain on, on pull back the curtain school. on that, exactly right. that utopia up there in Detroit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, did you go to? Did you go to your residency right after dental school, or did you do something in between? 
No, I did a hitch in the Navy. Okay, so that so you did dental school, Navy, came back, did your residency. I see. Uh, yes. Okay. And so the Navy, the Navy was a chip shot. After coming out of dental school in Memphis, I'm like, what? Are you, throw me your best shot. Okay, so <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's no huge naval bases in Memphis. Um, I actually there there is, is there is really? one in Millington. Yeah, okay. there's actually a, it used to be a big air base. It's not okay. so much. Anymore, but yeah, not a lot, not a lot of like aircraft carriers there in Memphis. Probably, yeah. yeah there's the the running joke was the people around that area would say, "I joined the Navy to see the world," and they sent me to Millington, Tennessee. <laughs> exactly. So, is it, so where where was your where where did you spend your time in the Navy? Uh, I did a GPR in a hospital at North uh, North Chicago at Great Lakes Naval Base. Oh, okay. That's kind of where I got reintroduced to the bigger picture of oral surgery, and those guys were awesome. And it got me really interested in in that area of our profession. Okay, and that's so Chicago, North Chicago. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, so you got to experience Chicago as a as a uh, a naval uh, an officer, basically, right? When you were at a dental right. school, it's it's they say Chicago, but it's like South Keegan. Okay, okay, it's right on the border. Okay, so if you chose to, if you had time and you you could go into town, but it wasn't like it wasn't like you were. Uh, practicing in the john hancock building or anything like that oh not at all not at all (laughs) okay that's cool so so you so basically when did you know uh when did you know you're gonna be in the military uh when you're gonna do the navy through dentistry like were you was that before you started dental school or was it midway through i really started entertaining the idea i come from a very modest background dad was a factory worker Mm -hmm. my mom was a stay-at-home mom i was a first first generation generation healthcare provider, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so coming up with the funds to pay for dental school, I started looking at options and they had army scholarships. And then uh, my last year they had a Navy scholarship. So I started looking at army scholarships in my, between my first and second year. And I picked up second alternate and then the next year, first alternate. And then the third year I thought, well, the Navy's got one. I'll try for that one and picked it up and, and was lucky enough to, to, to get that scholarship. It's interesting because you know I there were plenty of people when I was in school that that did the Navy and a lot of them picked it up after their first or second year realized that it was a pretty great deal but now you realize for as expensive as dental school is now that is like now the spots that I think it was pretty competitive when I was in school it's really competitive now because I can imagine and, and I mean they're they're applying that's like their their plan to be able because they come out of school with like no debt essentially. And that's oh, sure. unheard of. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're dodging. So it's it makes a ton of sense. And I think I think getting into the military uh, for dental school is has become a whole different ball of wax. It's just a way more competitive thing now, which I think is kind of cool. Actually, the military has this has this. Um, I don't want to say leverage, but they've got this kind of military dentistry had a certain. I don't know. When I was in dental school, it was like, yeah, but you got to go to, you got to go and work for them for four years. You know, you lose, quote unquote, lose four years of your life. Now it's like the greatest thing that ever happened to you because you don't have to, you don't have to be shoveling out of debt like this. So it's just an interesting, it's, it's a turnabout from when you and I went to school, I think. No, I think so. And, and they've tightened up on those from what I understand. Yes, they don't, yes. I don't think they give them out as much anymore either. Yeah. And I think, I think they're, they're probably more competitive just like, just like everything else. You know, it's, it's sure. interesting. So I think that's kind of cool. So, and now you are, okay, so you, you went to the Navy, you went back to Memphis, did your, uh, your rotation, and then you, uh, how did you end up where you are now? I talked to a guy in the local area and we kind of had a handshake deal on a contract. Mm-hmm. 
And then when I got the contract and read it, it was nothing like what we talked about and shook hands on. And it was late in the 11th hour of my chief year. And I thought, well, this is not going to work. I'm not going to sign this and, and do this deal. So what am I going to, what am I going to do? So we looked, and at the time she was my, my girlfriend, we, we started on the non-call weekends I had, we'd go around middle Tennessee and look at these smaller towns outside of Nashville, oh, wow. Chattanooga. Okay. okay. And we just were looking for a place to light. And, and I thought, well, I'll just do my own practice. I'll just do a startup. I mean, that's, yeah. that's bold. So you did a startup and everything for oral surgery. How about that? Yeah, I just hung a shingle and went after it. That's cool. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about your, uh, your practice now. So let's just pretend that we're all, uh, we're all a fly on Russell's wall here. The Alan Mead experience fly on the wall. Tell me about your practice. Tell me like what a normal day is in the life of Dr. Russell Kirk. There is no normal day in my life in the practice. <laughs> normal, quote unquote, normal. No, yeah, quote unquote. We we had one of those weeks where it's like, oh, are there any normal people in the world no, I, that yeah, are coming to the oral surgery? I get it, yeah. Uh, but but most, mostly um, my routine is this. I get up at 4.30. I get up early. I find that is the time that I can do a quick workout and do a little self-study, read, do some work on my own. Sometimes I do some reserve stuff because I'm still in the Navy reserve. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I drop my children off at school and head to the office. I get here about eight 30 and we do the heavy lifting for my practice in the morning. So I do all of my surgeries before one o'clock. Okay. And we have one emergency block in the afternoon, just in case we need to do that for, for one of our referring offices. Mm-hmm. And then afternoons loaded with consults, post-ops, and implant consults. So we, we do, we kind of taper off at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I've backed, backed off on my hospital cases. I do once a month in the hospital here for mostly pediatric cases and maybe some compromised patients is from a medical standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly from the podcast, you have, you have chosen to do some things that you, to not do some things you used to do kind of a, you had a, your menu was sort of the wide open oral surgery menu and you decided to back off on a lot of the stuff that, because it just wasn't, I suspect I know why I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw my theory out there, but, but what are there things that you used to do that you don't do anymore? Right. Uh, TMJ, most of what I was doing from TMJ standpoint was conservative treatment, very few surgical cases. Mm-hmm. So I got rusty. I mean, if you're not doing that on a mm-hmm. regular basis, I don't think I should be doing it. Yep. So I would, I would start sending those folks down. We were very lucky. We've been right down the road from Vanderbilt. So there's some good guys that do TMJ surgery at Vanderbilt at the residency program. So I, I refer those patients down the road. Mm-hmm. And over the years, we just don't do that much TMJ anymore. Uh, orthognathic surgery, yeah, same thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, you're doing one or two, three cases a year. Is that a, is that enough to keep your skill set up? I mean, it's not, it's, it's not unlike riding a bike, but still, I just didn't do enough of it. And it's such a struggle with insurers today to get those things approved. Yeah. So we, we give that up and the trauma that's, that's a fun thing. I I could certainly see myself doing trauma, but the lifestyle for the hour spent for the reimbursement, the formula just didn't work. So yeah. Yeah. Those are two or three things that I dropped off. Interesting. So um, I have a theory about this too. And it's like the, it's the mead theory of reps, you know, the, the procedures I like doing the most are the ones that I've, I hate to, I know everyone says, oh, you need to live outside your comfort zone. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I love my comfort zone. 
Um, Amen. I mean, and, and there's, I get it. I know what they're saying. You don't grow if you're not pushing. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Here's my thing. I, I, I like endo. I find endo satisfying. I don't do enough of it to make it the kind of thing that I'm comfortable as comfortable with as say, you know, the regular restorative that I do. Does that mean I should do no endo? No, I, but I, but I do feel like I'm kind of in a mid middle point where I either need to up my game take some more CE and get, get more comfortable. Mind you, I've got an office that's perfectly set up. I got microscopes coming out of my ears, but I, I don't have a CT. I'll say that. And that's a, that's becoming an endo thing now too. But I, but I'll say that like the stuff that you can do efficiently and the stuff that you can do predictably have a lot to do with the reps and, and your, and, and what you set yourself up to do. So the more wild and crazy stuff that you're not doing very often. I mean, implants are like that for me. I got, I got some implant training. I I've enjoyed the implants I've placed. I only do really easy ones and all this stuff, but you know what? I'm having to relearn how to do it almost every time I do it now, even though, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm trying to remember all the, it's, it's not as in like my team, same story. It's not a natural, Oh, we just go right to, we kind of have to think about it. And that's, that makes it a little less fun, a little less predictable to me. I don't know. So yeah, and and I look at it from an efficiency standpoint as well, and a productivity standpoint. Sure. Because you're going back to the business thing, we're, we're we're in business, and if you're doing things that where you're having to, and I I feel the same way. It's the same way with some of the things that I just mentioned, the workups and doing all these things mm-hmm. for your orthopedic patients. And then you're spending six eight hours in a in a case in the hospital. It's a time out of the office. The reimbursement's so low. Is it worth it? Uh, Especially if there's yeah. other people that are doing it too. There's other All people that are time. doing it regularly and, and, yes. and can do it more efficiently. Here's my thing, you know, molar endo. I could do a great molar endo. It's going to take me three appointments and six hours for the same tooth that my the guy that I refer to is going to take forty five minutes. You know, an hour. Exactly, and and that's that's where as I'm a, at. Yeah, with as my a practice. patient too, as a patient, I'm like, whose office do I want to be in? <laughs> oh, amen. Yeah. So you do, you do a lot of, okay, you do, you do exodontia, you do, I know you do a lot of implants. Right. Um, and I know that, so those are kind of your two sweet spots, I suspect. And, and here's something I was going to ask you. You said you do all your surgery in the morning and then you, you do the, the lighter lifting in the afternoon. And I freaking love that. And maybe in a specialty office, that's a little easier to do. I would love to be able to do that, but I feel like I have zero control over my schedule because, you know, we leave it wider. How did you ever run into any any pushback on that from your team or your office when you set up the idea that you do this is what you do in the morning and this is what you so essentially that's a block type scheduling? Well, tell me how you set that up. Well, we used to be all over the map, and it was just so frustrating. It was so hard to manage, and it was controlling us all the time. And very much frustrated, I went to my team and I said, look, we, we can't keep doing this. This is driving me crazy. And we were always running behind. The patients were upset. They were waiting. You would have, you know, big cases that would go long next to consults. They were sitting there waiting for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15. And they were upset. We have to get control of this. And we started talking about how to do this in a, in a logical manner. And the first thing that we kind of leaned on was like, okay, well, who would be the first patients in the morning? And because most of the patients we do surgery for are IV sedation cases and they can't eat or drink, the logical answer was, let's put all of those cases first because they just skip breakfast and they're not having to go all day without something to eat or drink. So that's how we started. And then we started building it from there and adding emergency blocks as well as local blocks 
and it just morphed into where it's at today. And we did have pushback and we still do. We, my staff, my team, they've, they've gotten really good at being able to guide patients where they need to go. That's, that's a difficult thing. Cause first off, especially if you've, you've always done it the way that I do it, patients are used to being able to dictate when they come in. Yes. You know, I would love, I would love to be able to do my, my heavier restorative, you know, time consuming kind of stuff in the morning and do, you know, do the light, you know, do the crown seats in the evening or whatever, in the afternoon, something like that. I, would, I really, I need to look harder at that. I know there's a lot of people that have got that figured out. I'm a little bit soft when it comes to just patients dictating what, what we're going to do. So it's kind of an, and I mean, I, I hear you too, though. You've got an emergency slot open for, for life happens, but on the other hand, you're probably not doing emergency third, third molar sedation cases though. So no, not at all. Yeah. And, and, and we, like I say, we have the benefit of using that, that line with our patients far as surgery goes, we do our sedations because you can't eat or drink. Mm-hmm. And so we do it early in the day and mm-hmm. all of them pretty much without fail. Oh, I understand. And they nod their head and they just, they go ahead. Yeah. You may have an advantage over a non-specialist non- there. Yeah. I have an advantage there and I will admit to that. But I, but I still think that, I, I still think that like personal happiness uh, is worth it. <laughs> like, like the idea of like walking into an office where you know exactly what you're getting into and you know, you don't, there's nothing that I dread more than the case that you're not sure how it's going to go and it shows up and it's, you know, three 30 in the afternoon and <laughs> you got to wait all day wondering, you're going to see this nightmare patient you want to deal with or whatever. That's kind of the worst thing ever. Oh, I, I've been there. Yeah. I, I think we all have. I believe <laughs> it. I believe it. So something else I heard, I, I, this might be a little bit, a little bit weird to ask you. I'm curious about this because I've, I mean, I've known you pretty well for the last, I think I met you at least a year ago. Last time we were in, it was like Nashville last year was April. And we went, so, I mean, like I've known you for a little while. I've been listening to your show for a while and multiple times you have, you have uh, mentioned that you used to be more like this than you are now. And it sounds like you, you talked about, you used to be, used to have more of a temper. You used to fly off the handle more. You used to be a little bit and and you've kind of worked through, and you're not as emotional. Literally, just I think last week's show, you were talking about that, and you had people that were a little sheepish to admit something to you or whatever. I'm a little curious about that because, you know, people, as much as people want to believe that people can't change, I'm a little curious about it. Sounds like you have more, uh, you're more aware of your mood and your and how you present yourself outwardly than you used to. I'm just a little curious if you dig into that. Uh, yeah, I think, I think self-awareness, I think that's the key. And sometimes we are blind to, we're our own worst enemy sometimes. Mm-hmm. And would people, would, would people have thought that ah, Russell, he's a pretty angry dude or not necessarily. It depends on who you talk to. <laughs> depends on if, what, what end of it you were on. I get Depen- it. Depends on which line you're standing in. Sure. Exactly. I, I, I think what happened most of the time as I look back is I was the type of person that I, I don't like conflict. I try to avoid conflict. I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible wuss about that. Yeah. And the thing is, it's all well and good because I'll concede most everything. I'll just, just to keep the fight from happening, mm-hmm. I will concede. But occasionally you'll run across something that's something that I value, something that I have as a principle, and I will fight you to the death on that. Mm-hmm. And you'd never know when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so when I explode, people see that as unbalanced maybe yeah. or short-tempered. Because they never know, because I, I don't talk about it, and they don't know what I hold. That is so funny. That is that is me. That is me. Like, very rarely. Like, I I 
go along to get along most of the time. And then, but there's a few things that I'm passionate about or whatever. And, and the problem is, is that I can go when I'm in that spot. It's a little creepy. I can go from zero to fuck you in no time flat. Like, like it's, it's crazy because that's like, I am most, most 98% of the time I'm super easy going, but, but there's things that I get, I get kind of in, and, and I mean, I'm, I try hard not to be like that, but I do think you're right at the very core of it. I, I can't stand conflict. I can't. I don't, I don't, and what's really funny, and you probably know this too, when conflict actually comes up and you have to deal with it, I'm quite good at it and I can handle it without the world ending or anything like that. But like, it's the anticipation of, of that, that I really get messed up at uh, with. I just, I'm, I'm terrible about that stuff. I, no, I agree. It, and, and the look on people's faces when you do kind of have that explosion, mm-hmm. it's, it's, they look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. And it's, and it's a little scary because in a lot of cases they weren't, they, from, from anyone but you, they were expecting something like that, you know. Right, they're not prepared for it. Yeah, and, and a lot of times I'm not prepared for it. And frankly, I'm not a very good angry person. Once I'm there, I don't, I, I don't, like I want to get that emotion out, and so I do. And then it's 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 always weird. Like I always want to pull it back in as soon as it's out, and which tells me probably I need a little therapy. Oh, <laughs> That's, yeah. <it's>, I've, <laughs> I've kicked a few cabinets in my time and. My staff, they just they've learned to just let me have about five, ten minutes and I'll usually come back and apologize for yeah. my behavior. But yes, and I'm not proud of it after the fact. And and those are less frequent and less intense than yeah. what they used to be. So it's 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 improved. I agree. And and but it's like so then the question is, what do you do? Is there a way to change me to make it so I don't avoid conflict like that? And I I don't know, man. I there start, probably there probably start, is, but start Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Is that right? Okay, we'll dig in on that. Tell tell me about that. Oh, dude, that's and I know that I've talked about this. It has been you talk about therapy. There's all kinds of therapy. Well, that's my therapy. That's how that's my outlet from a mental health standpoint. You go and you train. You get the physical activity component, but you also get the mental because you when you walk on to that mat and you go and you spar with someone. It's hard to think about the person that ticked you off earlier in the day that said something sideways to you when they're when you're you're trying to not get choked. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of forget about those things. Sure. And you walk off the mat, you're physically tired but mentally refreshed. And, I, and that may sound a little weird, and if you've never done it, maybe you don't understand it, but I I've been doing it going on 4 years now, and that is that is a sacred time for me. I block that I do two or three hours a week. Mm-hmm. And if I don't get to do that, you you can tell it starts. I start getting a little antsy and it sort of starts to build up. It's what's funny about I know quite a few people who have done Brazilian jiu-jitsu and do this and they say the same thing. It has less to do with it. You know, it's it isn't so much about self-defense. It isn't so much about, um, you know, the physical activity. There's just something bordering on on like a spiritual and the other thing, the connection with the people that you're training with too, like these, these people you get very tight with, you know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's interesting because I haven't heard anyone that, that becomes an aficionado of Brazilian jiu-jitsu who has, who doesn't have that experience on, on some level. That's interesting. And you wonder if there are people out there that try to, that, that don't do it any longer, that didn't have that experience. Some of us sure. do, some of us don't. I, sure. I don't know how that plays out, but I, I'm a believer in it and, and it's, it's really helped me. Uh, from uh, from just a a self awareness standpoint and a and checking my ego and humility and and also when 
things go south and things aren't going well in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you have to just relax and take a breath. And that's easier said than done. But mm -hmm. as you continue to do it, you get better at it. And we can translate that, or at least I've been able to translate some of that to my personal and business life. You can take a deep breath and say, it's not that bad. Nobody's mm -hmm. trying to break my arm. Nobody's trying to choke me here. I can handle this. Uh -huh. So that's, that's, that's my take on it. That's very interesting. I, it's, I, and, and probably, probably there's some, some aspect of the physical that I'm missing out. Even if it wasn't that, I, I do know that like I've never, I've never gone for a long walk or a bike ride or anything and, and turn around and said, boy, that was really wasted time. <laughs> oh, yeah. The endorphins and all that you, you get out of that stuff. I think it's, there's something, there's something to be said for and that. It is funny too, because doing dentistry, even though it's not, it isn't necessarily, you know, you're not breathing hard. There's, there's a certain amount of, there's a, there's a physical aspect that you kind of need to work out of that. I mean, there's a, I think stress in the muscles and all that stuff. It's interesting. It's very interesting. All right. Now I want to, I want to have you, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about, first off, you have put together a course on, um, PRF, if I'm not mistaken, we're talking, um, I want, I want you to be able to give the Alan Mead experience audience, uh, the 92nd perfect pitch about why they need to chase down your course. So. Take a couple deep breaths. No one's going to try and choke you. <laughs> and we're going to go ahead and do the 90-second perfect pitch. All right. You've got a minute and a half to sell the Allen Mead Experience audience anything you want. An idea, a product, a service, a used car, whatever you like. But you have to stop when you hear my ass. <laughs> Welcome to the 90-second perfect pitch. Ready? Set. Go. Hi, my name is Russell Kirk. I'm a private practice oral surgeon, father of four, captain of the Navy Reserves, jiu-jitsu fanatic, novice podcaster, aspiring entrepreneur, and a Starbucks addict. Now, I'll tell you this, my brothers and sisters of dentistry, because I know that you have a list just like this. It's not exactly like this, but I know your time is valuable and you're juggling many, many things. In doing so, I know you don't want to compromise your mindset of being a continual student of our profession. You're trying to continually improve your practice from both a clinical and business standpoint. Now, I found myself in the same position when I was trying to implement PRF into my practice. I searched online, but I couldn't find anything that just fit my needs. And I didn't have the time to go traditional CE courses. So over several months, I tried to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and I finally got up and running with PRF. In doing so, I document my process, and I've put that in an online course at prfbasics.com. It's a course that's self-paced. You can complete it in the office, in your recliner, on the couch, in your underwear, drinking a beer, eating Cheetos. It's up to you. It's all free. All you need is your name and an email, prfbasics.com. Go check it out, and let's get PRF in your practice today. Wow. He didn't even need 90 seconds. I'm very impressed. Oh, I didn't? No, I you didn't, didn't see yeah, it. Check it out. He was so good, he had time to go have some Cheetos before his 30 <laughs> seconds were up. That was awesome, oh, dude. You brought your game, man. I love it. Oh, uh, I, I have a 40-minute drive to the office. Nice. I, I practice. The people in interstate think I'm crazy. I know. I'm so glad you did. That's cool. Meanwhile, so, okay. I guarantee you, you're going to have people going, well, wait a second. That's a pretty good deal. Free. I mean, I can give yeah, free, out my email good. address. Free's good. I'll take free every time I will. That's awesome, dude. So, and what's really cool is that 
you can trust him. He's a neurosurgeon. He's using this, right? Like every day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that. Uh, and, and it is funny because you hear a lot about PRF. It is. It's. It's not even an up and coming thing anymore. It's very. I mean, it's pretty much all over the place. So that's awesome. Very cool. So uh, I, I had top left. <laughs> I, 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 I'm impressed, man. Time just left. smoke a cigarette. I know right? it, was, it was that good. <laughs> Well, shoot, that's really funny. Um, so, uh, what do you think about uh, what do you think about the podcasting, the podcasting uh, horizons? You 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 still liking the looks of podcasting for yourself and others? I I am an avid podcast listener, mm-hmm. and that's and that's how I got involved in this. I I see that, and we've had this conversation back and forth via email and text sure. messages, sure. or not. I think there's so much opportunity here. I, I, I don't, I don't have a big enough strategic mind to see where this could actually go. Mm-hmm. And that's not just for the podcasters, but as an educational tool, we talked about how you can do these things. You can learn a lot from the podcast community in a lot of different niches, but also for for businesses to promote their wares and get in front of targeted audiences. Mm-hmm. And I, I just. I think there's a whole lot of upside to it, and I, do. I, I don't think it's going anywhere soon. I, I think it's here to stay. I agree. I mean, I, I being that I just started this podcast, it's pretty obvious that I'm all in on it. But what's funny about it is, is um, when we started, I thought, oh, it'd be cool to have a podcast. And little did I realize, like, in the same way that Dental Town kind of changed everything I did in dental practice back in like the the mid two thousands. This podcasting community that we've sort of created and and gotten into, even with like the Facebook group, the Dental Dental Hacks Nation Facebook group, and all that stuff, the interaction that I've had, the people that I've I've turned to learn to, the people that I take my CE from, it's all influenced by kind of who I've gotten to know and what I've you know what I've honestly, as as you know, when you do a podcast, you get I get to I get to talk to people that I wouldn't get to talk to otherwise when you have a podcast because. Uh, you know, when you have a platform that other people might be able to use, they're they're more willing to talk to you. It's amazing how that works. But uh, I feel like it's it's influenced a lot of what what I'm doing, and I'm well, glad. I'm, I'm glad. It's like it's super cool. It's just a. I never expected any of this to happen. <laughs> is what it comes yeah, down it, to. And it's interesting because it it makes you constantly question what you're doing when you're seeing other people and you're they're doing it a different way. They may, they mo, they mo, both of them may be effective, but you start to say, "Hey, well, that's an interesting perspective. That's a little different than what, what I've been doing," and it makes you think. And I'm okay with that. You do find that you get to interact with people that you otherwise may not have exactly been able to meet or talk to, and a little of it. And I have, I've heard multiple podcasters say this. A little of this is self serving because when you get to interview people, you get to talk yeah. to people, and and you open doors you get to learn for yourself. And that's been a, that's just been a, a huge benefit to me from what little bit of podcasting that I've done. Yeah, I agree. It's weird. It's, it's interesting how podcasting and even social media in general has made continuing education. It's a much more organic thing than it used to be. You know, it used to be, I go, I'm taking this class to learn how to do X versus I have a relationship with this person because I've listened to them on podcasts. I've seen what they do on social media. They've put up YouTube videos. I know, I mean, think of how much more you know about almost everyone you interact with before you even meet them. You know, it's, it's, 
I think I think that it's for the good for the most part. I also think it it, it allows you to know who's for real and who isn't. I think that's kind of a big deal too. I, I love and, it. And, I just can't get enough. And you you and I we talked about authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. And how and how I think that's that's so refreshing. Um, at least to me it is. Yeah. And I, I think you get a lot of that. It's not quite sometimes as polished in the podcasting community mm-hmm. as you would get otherwise. Mm-hmm. And and that's okay with me. I, I kind of love that. I understand yeah. it. I kind of like that yep. component of it because it's, it's real. I totally agree. And speaking of real, this was a real good time. Dr. Russell Kirk. I appreciate you. Oh, being man. on the show. This is always enjoy. Talking it's amazing with you how 45 minutes can go quick when you're, uh, when you're having a, <laughs> having a good time, but oh yeah, I sure appreciate you being on the show and I'm sure we'll have you again and we will talk to you again really soon. Yeah, I love what you're doing here, man. Keep it up. I will. We'll talk to you later. If you have any questions or comments for me on the Alan Mead Experience shows, email me at alan at alanmeadexperience at alan at com. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.